I'll just give you a little um, preview of what's going to happen next couple weeks. Uh, next week, my family's taking a little vacation, and Jacob Smith will be here. Uh, he's going to be speaking from the book of Zechariah. I'll probably have you turn to Zechariah next week, so when he starts, you know where to go. And he's going to talk about the throne room of God uh, from the book of Zechariah. Then for three weeks, I'll be over at Southwood, and Blake will be here at Anderson. So that's kind of what's going on. If you want to know the full schedule, it's on our website, and you can check that out. This morning, though, we're going to be in the book of Revelation again, Revelation chapter 19, if you want to turn there with me. Anybody been watching World Cup? Any World Cup fans? All right, yeah, we got some whoops and stuff, actually, 915 service. Uh, any of you not know what the World Cup is? Uh, you don't, don't raise your hand. Uh, my, my daughter and I were watching the World Cup uh, last week. Actually, to be more accurate, we were bowling right? And the World Cup was on one screen in front of us, and then there was uh, music videos on the other screen because everybody knows bowling in and of itself is not entertaining enough. So we got to watch the World Cup and music videos. So we're watching USA versus Portugal, and U.S. is doing great, doing really well. Uh, It's getting near the end of the game as we were finishing up our bowling, really just a couple minutes left, and uh, Americans around the world were celebrating. It was two to one, USA, and you could see they fixed the camera in on uh, American fans, and they're going crazy all over the world. Americans are going crazy. Two to one, beating Portugal. We were not predicted, it wasn't predicted that we would win. Portugal was the favorite in this game. There were really just seconds left as we were finishing up our, our bowling. The celebration's already going on, and you know, uh, there are not a lot of goals uh, usually in, in World Cup soccer, so with these seconds ticking down, it's, it's, it's in the bag. America's going to win, right? So we finished our last game. We turned in our bowling shoes, went out to the car. I turned on the radio. Game was over, and it was tied, 2-2. Two to two. So apparently, like in the last 30 seconds, Portugal scored a goal, tied up the game. Now, the, the, the bad thing was that if the United States had won outright, then we would have been guaranteed to advance. But since we didn't win that game, we needed to beat Germany to guarantee that we would advance. We didn't beat Germany. We lost 2-1 to one to Germany. But because Portugal only beat Ghana 2-1, to one, we advance anyway. Got it? <laughs> right? If you're not a World Cup fan, don't even worry about that because really that has nothing to do with my point whatsoever. My point is this. Okay? My point is this. Not World Cup scoring. My point is this. There are a lot of uncertain outcomes in life. Sometimes we think we've got it in the bag and we want to begin to celebrate, but there are a lot of uncertain outcomes in life and that can create a lot of stress and anxiety in life. Students, you're probably feeling some stress now. Summer school is moving on and maybe you came, as we talked about a couple weeks ago as a freshman, kind of get a few hours under your belt. First session's about to finish. How's it going to turn out? There may be a level of uncertainty in that. Or maybe you arrived early because you wanted to get a date. You jumped in early, you know. I want to get to know the rest of the student body, and maybe you will and maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have the courage to ask someone, maybe you won't, or maybe you'll get asked, or maybe you won't. Someday you're going to do a job interview, and maybe you'll get the job, and maybe you won't. Right now, the most stressful thing is thinking about the date, but I guarantee you, your parents are already thinking about that job interview, and the anxiety is welling up within them. Will you get married? And If you get married, will you have kids? And if you get kids, will they walk with Jesus? In other words, at every stage in life, there are new uncertainties, new anxieties. And yet there's one thing that's guaranteed in our lives. 
There's one thing that is so absolutely certain that heaven tells us, it's okay, go ahead and start celebrating right now. And that is the return of Jesus Christ. It is so absolutely certain that heaven itself is already starting to celebrate and heaven invites us to celebrate. And that's what we see in Revelation chapter 19 is that all of creation is invited to celebrate because the sun is going to return. I want you to read with me in Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, we're going to read the first six verses. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Revelation chapter 19 opens up with an announcement of God's victory. Revelation 19 opens up with a worship service. Four times, all the hosts of heaven and those who are on the earth and under the earth are invited to say, hallelujah, praise God, worship God. And their attention is directed not to worship God because of his mercy and compassion and kindness, but because he has started to reign and he's beginning to execute his justice on the earth. And he is destroying those who oppose him and those who are destroying the earth. Specifically, Revelation 19 opens up with after these things. And these things that he's referring to is the destruction of Babylon. Now, what is Babylon? We know that Babylon was literally a city. There are ruins of a city now. There's a city that has grown up beside those ruins And it may be that John is referring literally to that city. Maybe that city will be rebuilt. It could be that he's using the name Babylon metaphorically to refer to another city. He does that earlier in the book of Revelation. He talks about the city of Jerusalem and names it Sodom or Rome because Jerusalem has become so evil. So it may be that he's labeling this future city Babylon because it represents a world order that is opposed to God. So what's important is not where exactly will that city be, but what does that city represent? It represents a a literal city that joins its forces with the forces of Satan to create a new world order and exercise control over all of life, over religion, over morality, over politics, and over economics. I want you to read with me in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 3. Revelation chapter 17, verse 3. This is John speaking. He says, The angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman, who is Babylon, sitting on a scarlet beast. In other words, there is a joining of forces between the city of Babylon and the forces of Satan, represented by the scarlet beast here. Full of blasphemous names, that is, false worship, 
having seven heads and ten horns, that is political power. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, that is excessive wealth. And having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of unclean things of her immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Babylon represents a world order that is utterly and completely in opposition to God. Economics, politics, morality, religion. All focused not on worshiping God, not on submitting to God, not on obeying God, but being in opposition to God and destroying God. And the forces of Babylon and the forces of Satan have joined together. Now what will happen in the future is that those forces will begin to pull apart. And there will be a civil war that will separate the two. And Babylon itself will be destroyed. Look with me in chapter 17 and verse 15. The angel said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot, that is Babylon, sits, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. In other words, this is worldwide. The ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, And will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So the city had the ultimate power and as Satan's forces begin to rise up, they join forces initially but then there's a civil war because Satan's not willing to be just a partner. So the civil war tears the alliance apart and the satanic forces destroy the city of Babylon. And that destruction of the city of Babylon foretells ultimately the destruction of the forces of Satan, which after they destroy Babylon, then turn their attention to attacking the lamb of God and all of those who worship the lamb of God. Read with me in chapter 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. But they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. So all the kingdoms of the earth come under the authority of the beast. These will wage war against the lamb and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. And so the defeat of Babylon foretells or portends the defeat of the forces of the Antichrist. The Antichrist and Satan and the false prophet form what is, in essence, a false trinity. We know that Satan is an angel of light or disguises himself as an angel of light. One of the ways that he deceives us is he comes looking good. And one of the ways he tries to look good is by imitating or mimicking what God is and what God does. And so what you see in the book of Revelation is a false trinity. There is the serpent, who is also called a dragon, that is Satan. He tries to take the place of God the Father. That's what he has always done. From the moment that he chose to leave the presence of God and rebel against God, he has wanted to establish a a false kingdom in opposition to God so that he would be the ultimate object of worship. And in order to do so, he will raise up for himself a character who will try to take the place of the Son. In Revelation, he's called the beast or he's called the antichrist, which, as you know, doesn't mean just against Christ or against Messiah. It can also mean in place of Messiah. 
Read with me in chapter 13 and verse 1. Revelation 13, verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And the dragon is Satan. Then I saw a beast that is the Antichrist. That is a man who is possessed by the power of Satan. I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns, that is horn representing political power, were ten diadems. And and the diadems also represent the kingdoms over which he rules. On his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great and great authority. I saw one of the heads of the Antichrist as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And that is an imitation of death and resurrection of the son. There will be a miraculous pseudo resurrection of the Antichrist. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? He is the Messiah. Dead but now raised from the dead. There's a third character. He's at times called a second beast or the false prophet. Look with me in chapter 13 and verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause many to do, many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The false prophet takes the place of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't receive worship to himself, but he directs worship to the Antichrist who's imitating the son who died but was raised. And he's even given power to perform signs on the earth, sending fire and smoke, signs in the sky, signs upon the earth, similar to the day of Pentecost. And so you have this unholy trinity And in Revelation chapter 19, we see God beginning this process of literally coming and defeating his enemies. It starts with the defeat of Babylon, which portends the defeat of the unholy trinity. And as these defeats are mounting up, all of heaven is invited saying, come worship, come celebrate, okay, come celebrate. And you know, if you have ever experienced the effects of of evil in the world, you will celebrate on this day. If you have ever experienced the, the, the effects of, of sin in your own life and the, and the terrible consequences of sin, if you ever felt the power of the flesh pulling at you, if you've ever been wronged by some, someone, if you've ever seen sorrow and pain and death and suffering, on that day you will begin to rejoice because you will say, God, thank you, you are setting things right. Turn with me to chapter 11 and verse 15. It says, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world 
has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces, and they worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power, and you have begun to reign. And this is the great hope of humanity. Remember, the book of Revelation is is the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? Not revelations, but the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the unveiling of Christ. He came one time before, but his glory was veiled. Now he will come again, and that glory will be clear for all of mankind to see. And when he comes, he will take that scroll out of the Father's hands, which we said is like the title deed to earth. The authority to rule and reign over all of God's creation. That that title deed which was given to Adam, but Adam and Eve on our behalf forfeited it. And consequently turned this earth over to the power of evil. But Jesus Christ will come and he'll take that scroll and he'll he'll begin to unroll it and he'll break the seals. And he'll begin that process of taking earth back for God and God's glory. And when he begins that process of defeating God's enemy, all of heaven says, come on, let's worship. Let's celebrate the victory of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Read with me in chapter 19 and verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words, these true words are the words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Just worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And we don't often think of it in these terms, but you know, heaven loves a party. <laughs> heaven loves to celebrate. In particular, heaven loves, heaven loves wedding parties. Right? Genesis opened up. The first celebration was a wedding party. Jesus' first miracle at a wedding party. Revelation is wrapping up. That final celebration, it's a wedding party. And I know some of you dads are saying, but I don't like weddings, right? <laughs> I understand. I, you know, I, I get that. I, I, uh, I remember when Tristy and I got engaged and I was told that it would take six months of planning. I was like, seriously? No, six, it's just like a couple hours. How could it possibly take six months? Let's just go, you know, for 70 bucks, state of Texas, we get the license, stand in front of somebody, say I do, and let's move on, right? Six months? Seriously. But then we began registering. And I swear, like, when, after I, I looked at, at the, the 300th fork, I curled up in a corner in Dillard's and I just started crying. I was like, okay, I'm beat, man. I'm beat. I give. I surrender. Uncle, uncle. Six months, I guess. If we got to do all this. And now as a dad, I'm looking at this whole thing from a whole different perspective. I'm saying, oh my gosh, this is crazy. Right? This is out of control. This is recklessly extravagant. I actually did a little research for us dads, right, in anticipation for myself. My daughter's just nine, so I've got a few years. By the time she's married, it'll be a lot more. But, okay, but just to give you, here's where we are currently in American culture. The average dress 
costs a thousand dollars. And you dads are like, okay, one, do you just get one? You only get one of those and you, you only get to wear it for a couple hours. Seriously? One dress. Can you like, a use shop or right? Or borrow something. Can we share? Could we, who, do you have a friend who's getting married the same day? Can we, a thousand bucks. You dads are going, oh my gosh. And some of you ladies are saying only a thousand, right? <laughs> I know because last night I sat down with my wife and my daughter and I was talking to them a little bit and I said, hey, what do you think? How, how much do you think the average dress costs? And my daughter said, $10,000. I was like, no, no. I mean, the expectations are here. I go, no, it's a thousand and we're here, right? Now, man, that doesn't include accessories. And you don't even know what accessories are. I don't know, right? Ladies, accessories is all the stuff that has to go with the dress, right? So it might be some jewelry and uh, they have to get headgear of some form. There's going to be headgear, right? And shoes. And you got to have, uh, I guess, like right, the wedding socks, right? Socks. And so, I mean, it's just, okay. So those are all the accessories. Thousand doesn't even include accessories, okay? So a thousand. The average reception in the United States is $11,000. These are just averages. Some people spend a lot more than that. Now, that doesn't include, I got to, really, I got to sit down for this. Okay, that doesn't include flowers, which, you know, they're, they're not cheap, but they're all cut and they're going to die. I'm like, what? I, whatever. I still don't understand that. I buy them sometimes, but cut flowers. So cut flowers. You've got video and photography because you've got to have moving pictures and still pictures. Rings. Now, what's fascinating to me is on a lot of these websites, they didn't include the cost of rings because you buy those before the wedding. Come on, man. That's part of the package. Don't, don't, you know, no bait and switch here. But I would include rings. The number I'm going to give you in a minute doesn't even include rings. Invitations. A wedding consultant, the average wedding consultant makes $1,300. So the real purpose actually for this morning is um, I'm announcing this is my last sermon at Grace Bible Church. <laughs> I'm, going, I'm going to go into the consulting business because you're right, you know, pastors don't make 1300 bucks on a wedding. They don't make $1,300. And See, I would argue, you know, I, I know women, you're saying, well, yeah, but the consultant does a lot more work than the pastor, but you can't get married without a pastor. <laughs> I'm just saying, okay? So I'm shifting career paths. So you got a consultant, okay? Honeymoon, which also often wasn't included in this list. So I'm like, again, this is part of the whole package. Honeymoon, uh, entertainment, DJ, all that kind of thing. So all these things added up. Some of them, big ticket items set aside. The average total is twenty-five dollars to $30,000. Not including some things that I would have put in. And, and dads, you're saying to yourself, <laughs> that's crazy. Here's the bad news. Okay, bad news. In, in Jesus' day, weddings were actually more extravagant than this. Okay, so if you want to compare and we say, well, we want to be like the first century church, and don't go there. <laughs> their weddings were actually more extravagant because it wasn't just a day or a few hours. Their weddings would last sometimes a week. And you couldn't serve nuts and mints, right? You had to serve a whole meal or maybe multiple meals for seven days, Right? Meal after meal after meal after meal. And you couldn't sit down with the invitation list and say, oh, you know, 
crazy Aunt Clara, let's not let her, let's not invite her, you know, scratch her or this neighbor, we don't really, scratch that neighbor. You couldn't do that because people found out about the wedding, they would just come. There weren't, there weren't invitations, they would just come. So the whole town could show up. You need to be prepared for the entire town and all relatives coming from the entire country to descend and enjoy this feast that would last for seven days. That's the the bad news, is it was really extravagant. The good news is, the marriage supper of the Lamb, dads, we don't pay. (laughs) God pays. And he's not short on cash. He's going to throw the most amazing party that has ever been thrown in all of the history of the world. And we are invited. And so heaven screams out to the church and says, rejoice, be glad. Read with me verse 7 again. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, unfortunately, there is not a single translation that can really capture the, the power and the emotion of what we're called to here. You know, be glad. I'm like, I'm glad I get to go out to lunch after church. I'm glad I got a good deal on my wedding shoes. <laughs> I'm glad. It's just so vanilla. It's so plain. It's actually a, a compound word in Greek. The prefix means very much or again. And the verb means to leap. In other words, to be glad means to leap around a lot, again, over and over and over again. It just means jump and jump and jump for joy. Rejoice and jump for joy because the marriage of the Lamb has come and we are invited to that party. Peter speaks of it like this. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but you believe in him and you believe in that salvation that he's going to bring to you, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. In other words, Peter says, you can start your celebration right now because it is so certain that Christ will return and he will bring you your salvation and you will join in this celebration. Start now. In spite of the fact that you don't know everything that's going to transpire in your life, and there are all kinds of uncertainty, do not be buried by that. Instead, stand up and leap for joy, knowing what is coming. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah writes, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I will be overjoyed because of my God. For he clothes me in garments of deliverance. He puts on me a robe symbolizing vindication, that is, the defeat of God's enemies. I will look like a groom when he wears a turban as a priest would. I look like a bride when she puts on her jewelry. And the context of Isaiah is, Isaiah is saying, God is sending his suffering servant to return as a conquering king. And he's going to wipe out all of the enemies and he's going to establish God's kingdom on earth. And therefore, Isaiah says, therefore, I literally rejoice, rejoice. And I will be overjoyed. And that word for overjoyed is from a root word that means circle around or spin. In other words, Isaiah says, I rejoice, rejoice. I spin, I leap for joy. From time to time, I I, I will see a a little girl who's got a new dress on. And I, I love it because I can tell they're excited about their new dress. You know, and they're walking around, touching that new dress. And, you know, I, I can just see the thrill. And so I, I love 
complimenting that dress. One of the questions I'll ask is I'll say, tell me, how does that dress spin? Does it spin really good? Because girls love to spin in their dress. They love a dress that'll kind of fly out when they spin, right? And so they're touching it. And I know they've practiced. They put that dress on and they tested it, you know, to see would it spin well. And so tell me, how, how does your dress spin? Would you show me how it spins? And never fails. I've never been denied. They'll just start spinning around. And it's just great because they'll just get lost in the moment. Just pure joy, spinning and enjoying that, that, that dress, spinning out. Hey, that is the imagery here. Leap for joy, spin for joy. When's the last time you, you leapt for joy? You know, I, I actually, I literally, I remember the last time. It was, at, it was when Anna Joy and I were bowling, and she threw a strike. And we both went, yes! <laughs> we're jumping up and down. I, I caught it on video. If any of you would like to see, I caught her throwing a strike on video. And we're both jumping up and down. When's the last time you, you leapt for joy in worship? For some of you, it's probably easy to answer. You'd say, well, uh, Never right? I don't know. I don't leap much at all, really, ever. And no, you know what? You will. You will. You won't be able to hold yourself back because you've, you've seen and experienced so much pain and suffering and death caused by evil entering into the world. And when you see God beginning to, to set all of these things right, it will be an overwhelming feeling and you'll say, no, I must stand up and I must leap for joy and I just can't stop. Church, this is the fulfillment of all that we need, all that we long for, all that we, we hope for. And you know, God has, has couched all of this in the image of a wedding and marriage. In fact, our relationship with God throughout the Bible is put in terms of a marriage. So I want to help you understand a little bit of what this looks like. The Jewish wedding had multiple elements, and these are all behind the imagery that we see in Revelation 19. Okay, first, there was a contract. The groom's father would go to a potential bride's family, and he would negotiate a contract. He would pay a purchase price, the bride price, to secure this woman on behalf of his son. And once the contract was signed, it was irrevocable. They were considered married. Even though the marriage hadn't been completely fulfilled, all the steps, they hadn't gone through all that, it was a contract. It was secure. It wouldn't be broken. That's a picture of our salvation, men and women. The Bible pictures that contract as a picture of our salvation. God the Father purchased us, though unworthy, for his son with the blood of his son. And once that contract has been signed in the blood of Jesus Christ, it will not be broken. We belong to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we're called the bride of Christ. He has purchased us with his blood and we remain his forever. The moment that you believe the blood of Christ is applied to that contract on your behalf. And it's simply through faith. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. We're not a worthy bride for Jesus Christ. He takes us in our unworthiness and God the Father secures us with the blood of Christ so that we will forever belong to his son so that the son can make us worthy. That's a picture of our salvation. The second step is the betrothal period. And legally, the couple is married, but they don't go through the wedding ceremony yet. There's a betrothal period. And during the betrothal period, the bride is making herself ready 
and the groom is preparing as well. The bride is gathering her dress. She's getting her bridesmaids ready. She's getting her headgear, right? She's getting her shoes. She's getting all her accessories. She's planning and preparing. Because according to their tradition, she didn't know the day that the groom would come. She didn't know the day that the groom would say, okay, now I'm ready. And so she's always got to be ready and prepared. Now, I think they probably just kind of played along with that culturally because you really never want to surprise a bride, right? And say, how about today? No, it's not, okay. But they played along with this idea that the groom could come at any minute. So always be prepared. The groom, on the other hand, would go back to his father's house and he wouldn't build a new house. He'd build a room on his father's house for himself and his bride and their children. As Jesus said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. There are many rooms. I'm going to prepare a room for you. And if I go and prepare that room, you know I'm going to come back again. Why? Because we have a contract. Because you're my bride. Because you belong to me and I love you. So right now I'm preparing a room in my father's house and it will be wonderful. But right now you need to wait and you need to prepare yourself. That's where we live right now, church. We are the bride of Christ. We belong to Jesus Christ. We are saved. And we're waiting for him to return. That's the processional. When the son finishes the room... And he's got everything ready and prepared to bring his bride back to his father's house. Then a trumpet will sound and he will march into the streets and they will say, Behold, the groom is coming. Behold, the groom is coming. And friends and family and people in the city and neighbors will all gather around him as he goes to the bride's house to take her to himself. That is the rapture. Where Jesus Christ gathers the bride to himself and takes her to his father's home. And then once he takes her to his father's home, they enter into the wedding chamber. And in the wedding chamber, everything comes off. The bride is seen as she is. Was she prepared? It's, It's inspection, in a sense. That's the judgment seat of Christ. Church, we belong to Jesus Christ. We are betrothed to him. There's a contract. We can never be removed. It can't be broken. We can't break it. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit won't break it because they're faithful. We belong to Jesus. But as secure believers in Jesus Christ, we will be evaluated for how we spend our lives as Christians. Do we live well and do we live wisely? Were we prepared for the Son to return at any moment and take us to that judgment seat? And evaluate? That's the wedding chamber. After that consummation of the wedding, they walk out of the wedding chamber and they have a feast. That's the feast that goes on for seven days. How long will this feast last that's described in Revelation chapter 19? Is it seven days? I don't think so. I think it's actually seven years. I think it's a seven-year celebration that dads, we don't pay for, Jesus pays for. God pays for. And it goes on and on and on. There's never been a celebration like it on earth or even in heaven. And you and I are invited to that. In fact, we've been given a a, a ritual, a practice to remind us of that day. It's called communion. Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, as he was breaking bread and giving out a cup, he said, you know, this, this meal, this Passover meal, Well, it's also going to be a a wedding celebration, but I'm not going to eat it with you again until I return in the kingdom. 
this, this cup we're sharing together, I'm not going to, going to drink it again until I drink it again in the kingdom. And what's he referring to? He's referring to Revelation chapter 19. So in communion, what, what we do is we look back to Jesus conquering on the cross through his body being broken and his blood shed, rising from the dead. Communion, we look back to that victory, the victory of the cross. But at communion, you know, we're also supposed to look forward to that time when we get to eat the meal again with Jesus. Because we don't get to share that meal actually with Jesus now, but we are reminded that we will share it with him. So in the midst of all of the frustrations and anxiety and stress and sorrow of life, we can say, no, there is one thing that is secure, and that is Jesus Christ will return and establish the kingdom of God on earth, and we will be there and we will celebrate. And so heaven says, we'll start celebrating now. Because it's that certain that it will happen. Now, how does the bride prepare herself Look with me in chapter 19, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to the Lamb, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. How? What does the bride do? Verse 8. It says, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That word for fine linen, word of clothing that was worn by priests and royalty and only by priests and royalty. And the fine linen that we wear to this marriage supper of the Lamb, we're told, is righteous acts. Living well and living wisely. Living with an eternal perspective that God is going to establish his kingdom on earth and we don't need to be caught up in the kingdom of the world. Paul summarizes it well in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you notice it says that Jesus hands out these wedding clothes? We don't pick out the dress, so to speak, for ourselves. We don't pick out that clothing for ourselves. God picks out that clothing. The clothing is the righteous acts. And so God has designed your life Unique, not like any other life. And he has laid out before you righteous acts that you can do as you walk day in and day out. Sometimes it may seem like a a big and enormous sacrifice, but most days it's just faithfully doing what God has called you to execute this day. It's walking with him faithfully. It's confessing sin. It's serving others. It's saying no to your flesh flesh and yes to Jesus. And how do you do that? You do that by reminding yourself over and over and over again that what's happening in this world is not the end of the story. And what's happening in your life is not the whole picture. And what's most important is thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because Jesus will return. Notice, heaven opens up again to John. John in Revelation 19 and verse 11. He says, I saw heaven opened again, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and wages war, his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The name which is above every other name, it is Jesus. First time he came, he came mounted on a donkey. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a suffering servant and many missed it. So show us a sign, show us a sign, show us a sign. Even John the Baptist said, are, are you the one or should we wait for another? Because we weren't expecting one to ride in in peace on a donkey. We were expecting one to ride in as a conqueror. And you know, the, the problem wasn't that they were wrong about that vision. They were wrong about the timing. Because first he would come to suffer, but then he would return, not on a donkey, but on a white horse. And the image is very clear. Okay, it's, it's the image that, that was used in, in Rome of the general who conquered, he would come into Rome on a white horse, literally, and he and his armies would parade down the Via Sacra, down the, the sacred way, and they would come from the Forum all the way up to the Temple of Jupiter. And his name would be proclaimed, and he would be exalted, and he'd have his armies behind him, and all the plunder behind him. And when Revelation was written, the Romans were persecuting the church powerfully. Emperor worship was at as a, an all-time high. And because members of the body of Christ, the church, were not worshiping the emperor, but they were only worshiping Jesus, they were suffering. And so God says, let me give you a vision, John, of the true power, of the true center of power, the true seat of power. And it's not in Rome, it's in heaven. And so someday your king will come. And he will be mounted on a white steed. And he won't be alone. He'll have armies behind him. And you are his armies, clothed in white. And there will be a climactic battle, but it will be anticlimactic in a sense because we won't even be called upon to fight. The King of kings and Lord of lords is also the word of God. And he will speak and his enemies will be defeated and God's kingdom will come on the earth. And we will celebrate. So men and women in the midst of our lives... When, as Jesus said, we get worried and troubled about so many things. What Jesus wants us to do is to take our eyes off of the circumstances of the moment, just for a moment. And not to diminish the the, the pain and the suffering we may experience, but to remember that this is not the end of the story. This is not the final chapter. There is one thing that is certain and secure, and it is that Jesus Christ will return And we can start celebrating now. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would live in confidence and hope. I pray that we would live in holiness and purity. I pray, Father, that we would be prepared for the return of your son at any moment. That we would live well and wisely. We would invest our lives in your kingdom to come, which lasts forever and is enduring, and not in the things of this earth. Father, thank you for refreshing our vision through John's vision. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, As we close, I want to just let you know, if you're a new family, you've been visiting Grace, and you'd like to find out a little bit more about uh, our church and uh, how to get plugged in, uh, a couple of our staff members, Dusty and Zach, are going to be up here. Uh, I'll stay around as well if you want to come up and just ask ask us some questions. I know a lot of people visit in the summers. Please do. Uh, For the rest of you, God bless you. Have a great week.